Thank you for joining this sermon podcast from Cornerstone Fellowship in Forest City, North Carolina. We hope that you are blessed and encouraged by today's message. Cornerstone exists to glorify God as we passionately pursue Him and make Him known through worship, discipleship, fellowship, and outreach. Here's today's message. This morning I'm going to ask you to turn with us in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. And we will begin our reading in verse 13. Matthew chapter 16. And we will begin our reading in verse 13. A familiar passage. We spent 11 weeks in 2 Peter. And I think he's given us a good jump start for this passage today. I'm not sure where the Lord will lead us next, but he spent a lot of time warning us that as time goes on, life for the church will get tough. So let's take a look at what Jesus had to say to his disciples. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 says, Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. That's that's not bad company to be in unless you're the Son of God. And then it's the downgrade. But think about this as I pause for one second. Sometimes people today in our world like to treat Jesus as if he were a lot kinder and more gentler than the Old Testament prophets. But look at who, from hearing what he taught and hearing how he preached, look to whom they compared him. Some think you're Elijah. That, he, he wasn't exactly a gentle preacher. Some think you're Jeremiah. And, and of course, yep, some think you're John the Baptist. <laughs> And we know what a wild man he was. He said unto them, But who do you say that I am? And if we looked at this verse, this this one line in the original Greek, we would see the word you at the very beginning of the statement that Jesus makes. Word, order, means nothing in the Greek because it's an inflective language wherein the ending or prefix of words tells you this is the subject, this is the direct object, on and on, all of that cool stuff that we should have learned in English, but we may not have. But he says you. He starts with the word you. That's an emphatic. Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of John. Almost a little play on words. You call me the Son of God, I call you the Son of John. Simon bar Jonah, for flesh and blood is not revealed this to you. You didn't gather this point on your own. But my Father who is in heaven. And then lastly, I tell you, you are 
Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. A great word of promise for us today. I hope it encourages us. The word church is only used twice. It occurs two times in the Gospels, and both times it is found in Matthew's version or Matthew's account of the Gospel. It is first once it's found in Matthew 18, and that's where Jesus is teaching his disciples about church discipline and what to do if a person becomes irreconcilable and just will not accept an apology or an explanation and the rift continues to grow, Jesus says put them before the church and treat them like a Gentile or as an outcast. But two chapters prior, he uses the word church, and here he interestingly binds the understanding of church with a good understanding or a proper understanding of himself. He asked his disciples, he said, whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Now, it's odd that when they gave him the results of the survey that had been done, that none of them got it right. There wasn't one of them who said, well, and there are a few who say that we think you're the Son of God. None of them, even looking at him, seeing him, watching him work, hearing him preach, none of them seemed to draw the conclusion that this really could be the Son of God. And some said, well, he's John the Baptist. Some say, Jesus, you're Elijah. Some say, Jeremiah, are one of the prophets. Notice Jesus never said, well, well that, 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 that's, that's okay. Because he didn't frame the question, well, who is Jesus to you? Or he never asked, who do you want Jesus? Or who do you need Jesus to be for you? Jesus is not just raw material that can be shaped into whatever idea we feel like we need at the time. Jesus says, I am who I am. And that you need to be correct about your understanding as to exactly who that is. Now, even though they still got it all wrong, let me just tell you, they already knew there was something about him that was different than anyone they had ever met. As a matter of fact, after Jesus' temptation, he went to Galilee, and then the area of Galilee is a little town called Nazareth, and that's where Jesus was from, and he went into the synagogue there, and he took the scroll and began to read, and then he sat down in the seat where the teacher sits, and he began to teach them. Now, yeah, it didn't end well because he taught them some things that they didn't want to hear. And it says that when he finished teaching them, the people there in his own hometown became angry. And that word for anger there is thumos. They just turned into an instant rage. He just absolutely set them ablaze with his words. But they were all wondering, who is this man? Some said, well, is this not the carpenter's son that, that, 
that we used to know? Is that not the little boy that grew up with Joseph as his father? And, and some of them, that's all they saw. But still they knew there is something about anybody who just walks in the synagogue, takes the scroll, and sits down and teaches with the authority that belongs only to God. They weren't the only ones. When Jesus stilled the storm at sea early in his ministry, his disciples asked that very question. Who is this man that even the winds and the waves obey him? And then he got into a conversation with the Jews in John chapter 8. And, and they began to talk about Abraham and how they identified with him. And he looks at them and says, look, just just." Let me clear it up for you. Before Abraham was, I am. And they began to look at him and they said, well, who are you? Are you greater than Abraham? And they actually in John 8 asked him, who are you? And even when Paul was confronted on the Damascus road by our Savior, his first question was, Lord... Sounds like he had some idea. Who are you? Who are you? A proper understanding of who Jesus is is fundamental for us to be the church that we need to be. And I can tell you, we've never lived in a time when the church needed to understand exactly what its mission and its purpose was more so than nowadays. Every week we are, it seems, uh, introduced to yet another reminder that Christ is the only answer for this world. What is going on right now in the Middle East could make its way here, man, in a matter of seconds. I, I, I can just tell you, and plus the fact that it's just going on there should concern us greatly, but our world is in turmoil and there's so much uncertainty and we were hearing it. It was in the news last week, if you're a careful observer, but we were hearing last week that there were terrorist groups around the world that were beginning to rumble. And the reason why was because of the weakened leadership in the United States of America. Congress is in disarray. There are other things that are in disarray. Our leadership has just become non-existent and I can tell you the swords have begun to rattle in the scabbers. So let me just ask you this. If we are the church, what are we supposed to be doing during this time? Paul tells us later on, and when he writes to Timothy, he says, Church, you are to be the pillar and the foundation of truth. The pillar was like a column and the bulwark that he mentioned was the foundation under that column. He says the church of the living God, he said, is to be the pillar, the thing that upholds the truth. When no one else is standing up for what is right. It is not the job of the church to blend, to modify its message, to liberalize its thinking, to soften the conviction of Scripture, but it is the job of the church to stand up for the truth of the living God. That's what we are to be doing in this horrible world. Now, some ask the question, 
Mike, do you think the church will even survive? Well, that's not even a real question because Jesus has answered it. He said, I will build my church and even the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So our question just has to be this. It's not will the real church of Jesus Christ survive. We need to just ask ourselves, are we the real church? Or are we a group of religious people that are going somewhere and just meeting at a building somewhere? That happens every Sunday in the United States of America and places all over the world, I am sure. But we have to ask ourselves, are we really being the church that God would have us be? In Acts 17, it says in the early church, they were accused of turning the world upside down. Today, it seems the world hardly hears a peep out of us sometimes. So I just want to share with you a very simple message this morning from Jesus' teachings. As we listen to what he tells us about who he is and who he expects us to be. First of all, he says, I am the master of the church. Verse 18 says, I am the master of the church because he said, I will build my church. Brother H.B. Charles, we get to hear him when we go down to Jacksonville. Brother Mike Deese and I, he made a statement one time. He said, God didn't say, I'll build your church. He said, I'll build my church. He says, this is my church. It belongs to him. So it might seem like just a simple truth or an obvious statement, but one of the things that we really ought to keep in mind is this is not our church. It belongs to God. We have to understand that. And there have been so many outside influences on the church, even throughout history. For a thousand years, the Catholicism really had the church by the throat in it. It turned it from something very simple that, that shared the gospel and hope with a lost and dying world into an institutionalized religion that got completely away from Scripture and discarded that simple message of hope and salvation for a thousand years. And then along came the Reformers, and, and as much regard as I have for them, great people of God, I can tell you they didn't get it all right either. And, and while you had the reformers and you had the Puritans, the reformers wanted to reform the church, the Puritans wanted to keep the church like it was but purify the church. And then there was a group of really hard-headed folks called the Anabaptists or the Separatists. Those are the ones from whom we came and they were the ones that wanted to separate completely from the church. So let me just tell you, the church has had a lot of influence on it down through the years, and it's had lots of opportunities to get away from what God designed it and desired for it to be. As a matter of fact, if you look in our world today, I made a, a, a list. The church has so many individualized personalities that, that have, have it's been given. Today we have traditional church, we got contemporary church, come as you are church, cowboy church, biker church, 
Outdoorsman Church, House Church, Organic Church, Mega Church, Home Church, Cell Group Churches, Satellite Churches, Secret Churches, Emergent Churches, Emerging Churches, and the list goes on. And most of these came from groups of people who said that they hated denominations. But it's inevitable. Because when we get in church... And we began to notice what we like and what we don't like. And we forget about what God likes and doesn't like. Church becomes like us and less like God. If you come to my house, my house will teach you some things about me. If I said nothing, if you took a stroll through my house, you would discover immediately that this guy's a hunter. You would know I am a fisherman. You would know I like an old rough, mean dog. You would know I am a welder as you continue your tour through the estate. You'd know I love dogs. You wouldn't see a cat, at least not one that wasn't headed in a different direction in a hurry. My house would teach you very little about the people who come there, but it would teach you a lot about me because I own that house. That's my house. And so when we come to God's house, it ought to teach us something about Him and not about the people who come there. When we say things, and I know we say them innocently sometimes, like, I like going to that church because I can be myself, or, or boy, that's my kind of preaching, or boy, that's my kind of singing, or my, boy, that right there, I tell you, amen, brother, that's my kind of worship right there. I, I even saw this week on Facebook a big argument going on about how preachers are supposed to dress. I, I stayed away from that. That's God, you ought not to look like you're going to the beach. Well, I wouldn't wear this to the beach. But I understand the point. But our problem is, instead of the church reflecting who God is, sometimes we become the master of the church and it begins to be a reflection of us. And if we don't like this one, if we find another one that suits us or fits us a little better. Now, we might put lipstick on this pig. We might say, hey, well, I just, the, 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 the preaching, I, 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 I just don't know. There was something wrong with it. We might not say that, hey, I just didn't like it, or it just didn't suit me, or there was just something about it that struck me wrong. You might dress up your reason for it, but a lot of times we float around, bounce around, go from place to place, looking for ourselves instead of the Spirit of God. And I can tell you, before we move on, the greatest challenge to having the church that reflects God is to give Him the one that reflects you. To surrender it to God. And say, God, I don't want church to be about me. I want church to be about you. Jesus says, well, if you want it to be about me, you'll have to know who I am. You'll have to understand who I am. You'll have to know the survey they did got it wrong. You'll have to know exactly how I identify 
exactly who I am. He says, I'm the master of the church. He says, secondly, I am the maker of the church. In verse 18, he says, I will build my church. He is the one that has to build it. And I can tell you, it, it wouldn't do us any good to try to build it anyway. We could bring in a lot of people or, or whatever. We might figure that out. A lot of churches have, and I'm not saying the big churches are all wrong. I'm not saying that at all. But I can tell you, no matter what we do, it's only temporary unless God is the one that does the building. COVID brought about, I think, a needed sifting, honestly. And there's no one that's not here this morning that used to be that I, I, I wish they were all here. I wish they all come back. I wish our church was packed to the gills. It would just bless me to pieces. But I can tell you when COVID came along and people, uh, maybe all they had was just family ties to the church or it was conveniently located. You know, I just go to the church right down below my house or whatever. You, you wouldn't do that with anything else. You, you, you wouldn't say, well, I need major surgery, but there's a veterinarian clinic just a quarter mile away. You wouldn't do that with anything else that's important in your life. Maybe you had friendships or whatever. I can tell you, none of that is lo any longer adequate. Unless God transforms people's hearts and He brings them here, then I promise you, if they do come, they will not stay. Because he says, I have to build my church. And Jesus himself warned us. In Matthew's gospel, later on he'll tell us, and then he says, in the end, many will fall away. And betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise for 11 weeks. In Second Peter we saw that. And he says they will lead many astray. And he says because lawlessness will increase, he says the love of many will grow cold. It might not just flip off like a switch, but it will grow cold over time. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So that answers that question. Well, were the people that just fell away because of this, that, and the other, are they still saved just out there in the world somewhere? He says, no. He says, those who endure to the end, those are the ones who are going to be saved. And by the way, we don't endure to the end by our power. You won't endure to the end of this service by your power. It's by His power. And then verse 14, He says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. I, I don't know exactly what it is now. The oldest stat that I could find, or the latest stat that I could find, was 2019. We were losing in 2019 12 congregations a day, seven days a week. Seven days a week, 12 churches in America, just in America, were closing their doors, calling a realtor, and setting up the property for sale. Not enough people coming anymore. Just a not enough interest. It took a while, but the love grew cold. There were other things that all oh, used to be a big drawing card, but... 
but maybe not so much anymore. If it wasn't about Jesus to start with, I can tell you that whenever you lose whatever it was, then you'll lose whoever came there for that. It's just how it is. Matter of fact, it's so easy for us to take little foolish things and make them into something that's so important that we just can't live without it. And, and, and I, I, we're fortunate here. At Cornerstone, we don't have a, a, a long heritage. Uh, there's nobody's grandfather that built this building or there's nobody that donated this land. There's none of that that's ever gone on here. So we are fortunate in that regard, but we still must be careful because if we're not, then we get, begin to, to, to want what we want so badly, sometimes we can forget about what God wants. In 2 Kings chapter 18, a great example, Hezekiah began to notice that people were worshiping the serpent that Moses had raised in the book of Numbers in the wilderness. The bronze serpent that was put on a pole to give people relief from the serpents that were biting them. They had kept that serpent and, and hallowed that serpent for 800 years. And Hezekiah, 800 years later, says, I noticed that we have some people that instead of worshiping God, they have begun to worship that foolish serpent and he broke it to pieces and destroyed it. Oh, man, I guess had they voted him in, they would have voted him out. But it was God who put him there, and it was God who kept him there. It's amazing. He's the master of the church. He's the maker of the church. Secondly, he is also the message of the church. He gives us the message for the church. In verse 16, Peter says, you are the Christ, you are the Son of the living God. Now you got to understand Christ is the word for Messiah in the Old Testament. Christos is the Greek word for Messiah in the Old Testament, and it means the one who is anointed, the anointed one. He is the promised one. In John chapter 6, the disciples, that early on, were beginning to see this. It says, so Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? This is after the crowd left that he refused to feed. Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And then the next verse, he says, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus Christ, He is the Messiah, the one who fulfilled all the promises of the Old Testament and who fulfilled all of the righteous regulations of the Old Testament. He's the Savior. That has to be our message. And Jesus said, in Matthew 5, 17, in the Sermon on the Mount, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the, or the prophets. He says, I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. This is the gospel, and this has to be the message that we have for the world. 
So I'm just saying to you, and I know around here you say, well, that is what we preach. And And I hope we always do that. But we need to be very careful to never present Jesus Christ as, well, He is the answer for, you know, all of your little personal problems or that water bill or whatever. God can help you with all of those things. But I want to tell you, when we take the Savior of the world and make Him into some sort of personalized Santa Claus that if we rub the lamp right, then He has to do whatever it is we want Him to do, we have overlooked the most important thing about Jesus Christ, that He is the Son of God who came here in flesh and lived and died, and He can give us His righteousness as a gift of grace. He is our Savior. So if He never heals me, if he never heals me, I, 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 I stumped my grandchildren this week. They're going to be hanging out with, with, with us this week. So come by, you'll learn some about them too. But I said something to them about, well, my hand will be growing back soon. And they just, it blew their mind. Malachi turned around and said, is his hand really going to grow back? If my hand never grows back. I've been putting a miracle grow on it. A, a cloth I ordered from a preacher on TV. It could happen. If it never happens, if I'd have died in that tree, it'd have been fine. If it had never cured me of cancer, it would have been fine. And I'm so grateful for all of those things. But I want to tell you something. He's already taken care of the most important need I ever had. He is my Savior. Wow. That's what's so amazing about His grace. I think it's also important to note Caesarea Philippi, that's 25, 30 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. He took his disciples deep into Gentile, non-Jewish territory to begin to introduce them about a mission for the whole world. I'm the Savior. This whole world, it's not just a Jewish thing. I didn't just come here to straighten out the Pharisees. I didn't just come here to get the temple back on its feet. I didn't just come here to reenact the, or, or, or reno, uh, renovate the Old Testament ways of worship. I didn't come here to do that. I am the Savior of the world. This is my blood that was shed for you for the forgiveness of sins for not only you, but for the sins of the whole world. That's what he came here to do. There's a group called Global Commission Partners. I came across their website this week. They have some stats that I, I looked uh, as best I could, and it seems they're a very legit organization. But it was interesting some of the things that they had to say. They estimate that in AD 100, and that, that's, that's a long, long time ago, A.D. 100, there were 12 people groups for every one congregation in the world. Now, people group would, might not be just a, a nation. There could be multiple people groups in one nation. But 
different people groups across the world, groups of people that are identified by mission organizations, most of them or many of them are completely unreached. But in AD 100, there were 12 of those groups for every one congregation. This blew my mind. They said, today there are a thousand congregations, Christian evangelical congregations in the world for every one people group. And we're not reaching them. We're not reaching them. They said that since A.D. 30, they estimate that 67% of the world, since A.D. 30, has lived and died without ever hearing the name of Jesus. That is mind-blowing to me. In the last 40 years, they said a billion people have died. In the last 40 years, a billion people have died who never once heard of Jesus. 30 million will die this year. And I'm not sure exactly which year that is. Could have been last year or a year before. But 30 million will die this year who have never heard of Jesus Christ. One third of the present population of the world has never been introduced to Jesus Christ. When I read that, I was like, and God forgive us. We spend so much time, and, and boy, I, we're a very mission-minded church. I'm not saying we do near all that we should, but I'm so grateful that that's such a part of what we do. And I love that. I'm so blessed to be a part of that but I also know for me personally I felt convicted because I, I was like God I spend so much of my time here in America arguing with the hopeless and when I say hopeless we might say well there's no one hopeless in the eyes of God there are people who are hopeless because they don't want God they don't care about God they've heard the gospel till they're sick of it they laugh at the gospel. They don't care about it. They don't want to hear about it. They don't care about church or God or the Bible or any of that. And we keep telling them over and over and over. And every time we get ready to go spend a dollar somewhere, in many of our churches, people will say, well, we've got lost people right here. Yes, we do. And most of them have heard the gospel until they are sick of it. And they don't want the gospel. They don't want Jesus whereby they are hopeless. God help us. So many in this world want to hear about Jesus. Last of all, he's the master. He's the maker. He's the message. And he is our mission. He is our mission. In verse 13, he says, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Uh, just a side note, it should be clear now that you can't do a survey or take a poll and find out who Jesus is, okay? They tried it early on. Verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. When he says you're the Son of the living God, and then he looks back at Peter and says, blessed are you, son of John. I'm the son of God, you're the son of John. 
The Son of God doesn't mean that God had a child. The word ben or bar in the Hebrew means son of or seed of. Benjamin is son of my right hand, for example. So when he says Simon bar Jonah, that is the Greek spelling of John, so we know that Simon was the son of John. And a lot of time you would be identified that way through your father. Sometimes if you were the absolute epitome of a particular trait, for example, Barnabas. Barnabas, his real name was Joseph the Levite. That was not his real name, Barnabas. But they called him Barnabas because it meant son of encouragement. He personified encouragement. He was the absolute essence of encouragement. So his nickname became Barnabas, or son of encouragement. When Peter says you are the son of the living God, that's a Hebraism. It is a Hebraic way of saying you are God. You're absolutely God. You are totally and completely God. And when he said that, Jesus said, and upon this rock, Peter, blessed are you, son of John, because upon this rock you are Peter and I will Build my church on this rock. Now, let me go ahead and clear something up for you now. I hear all kinds of explanations as to why Peter wasn't the Pope. I can give you the best one is there was no such thing as a Pope. Okay? So let's start there and, and, and work our way through it. Some say, well, this is two different words for rock. Well, it is, or otherwise it would be grammatically incorrect because the word Petros is the word for the name Peter. It was a man's name. Stay with me. This is, this is, this is uh, kind of difficult nowadays, but since he was male, that word Petros is masculine. Okay. Do I need to get into the adult stuff today or do we have that? Pe <laughs> Petros is masculine. Now when Jesus says, and upon this rock I will build my church, the word rock, in the English language, all of our words, nouns, do not have gender. But in a lot of languages they do. And the word for rock in the Greek is always feminine. Unless you're using that as a name for someone who is always masculine. See what we learned today? <laughs> but let me take it a step further. Jesus wasn't speaking Greek. So he would have said, I tell you, you are Kepha. We call him Sipos, but that's our English way of saying it. He would have said this, you are Kepha, and on this Kepha I will Build my church. So all of that linguistic gymnastics we do actually means absolutely nothing. Because Jesus never intended to build his church on Simon Peter. As a matter of fact, if you look at the book of Acts, along about chapter 13 in the book of Acts, Peter almost disappears completely. And it is Paul who comes to the helm. So what is the rock? The rock is the confession. 
that Jesus Christ, who came to this world, lived and died and rose again to offer us perfect righteousness as a gift of grace is the Son of the living God. No wonder so many of our churches are weak. We have churches that have pastors that are like, well, you know, he, he, he might not have been divine, but he was certainly a good example for us to follow. I didn't need an example. I had a great example. I bet some of you that live like an idiot at some point in your life, did you not have some good examples in your life? You know, I don't hear you hear a lot of amens, but I bet you did. Did you not have some good teachers? Maybe he was just a good teacher. I bet some of you had some good teachers. I had a great teacher in some ways. My dad, he was, wow, his whole book on parenting was the size of a stamp. I say it, you do it. One more word, now. And when I drew a breath, it was that. Don't make me repeat it. That was just how it was. I had a good teacher. I had a lot of teachers. I had a grandma that loved me and was a great example and a great teacher. I had good pastors growing up. I want to tell you, my problem wasn't that I was just doing bad things. My problem was I was a sinner and I needed a Savior. And that's what our world needs. Not a sage. Not another Confucius not a Christian version of Socrates. No, we need, we need a Savior. We'll close with his last words we read. He said, in death are the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. The word here is Hades, and it does mean the abode of the dead. Now, there is a lake of fire that's talked about in the Revelation. This is not it. There's Sheol in the Old Testament. That's the abode of the dead in Hebrew. Hades in the New Testament, that's the abode of the dead in Greek. In Hades, when you die and you're a believer, you go to be with Jesus in paradise. And then one of these days, which is a part of Hades... And then one of these days when he returns, he is going to call forth these bodies. He's going to glorify them and give us bodies that can enjoy him and his presence eternally forever without pain and tears and all of that. All of that will come together. Then there will be a new heaven and a new earth and we will go and dwell in that place with him forever. The others will go to a lake of fire. But he says, my church, he says, it doesn't end with death. I'm so glad. There are organizations that you can belong to. Some of them have special funerals they do. Because you are no longer one of them, whatever you were a part of, okay? 
because you're dead. We have Christian funerals. But if we are born again believers, man, we're not saying goodbye forever. Someone described it, death for us as believers is like the turning off of a lamp. Not because what you want is darkness, but because the sun has arisen. You are in the presence of God. Wow. Today you will be with me in paradise. Well, that wasn't spoken to a preacher at his retirement party. That was spoken to a robber, not a thief, not a kleptos. That's a thief. That's a guy that steals your wallet and you never see him. This guy here, he was one of the flash mob members. He kicked in the door, dove through the glass, grabbed a flat screen, tore all the pieces, getting it in the trunk of a Toyota, and left. That's who this guy was. But when he says, remember me when you come. In his dying breath, our Savior worked up the strength to whisper those words to him today. Now you can see that as good news or bad news. If in the morning you get up and God tells you today you'll be with me in paradise, you might want to take care of a few things. Here was a man that was dying without hope. Today you will be with me in paradise. That's a Savior. That's our mission. To tell the world that God Almighty, the creator of the universe, stepped into this place and we may hate him, some do, because of the pain they've lived through and the agony. And some have lived through things so much worse than I've ever known. I do not dare judge them. But I have to tell you, our Creator stepped into his creation and felt that pain and felt that sickness and, and, and was butchered on a cross and felt all of the things and the temptations that we feel. So it's hard for us to look at him logically and blame him for all our troubles. He came here and he shared them. And then he gave us the promise if we put our faith and trust in him, one day those problems will be no more. That's when I get my hand back. That's when I quit slapping myself in the face trying to clap when they sing up here. That's okay. Between now and then, man, he's my Savior. Hallelujah. Church, tough place. There's no telling what may happen this week in our world. On the international scene, I can tell you right now, there's, this could be significant. Let's make sure before you leave here today, heads bowed and eyes closed. If you don't know him as your Savior, why not tell him right now? 
Why not come to him and repent and say, God, I repent of my sins. I'm not here to justify myself, Lord. I'm a sinner who needs saving. And I am willing to forsake that sinful life. That selfishness, God. That self-centeredness. Tell Him, Lord, I want to receive Your salvation. I want to receive Your gift of grace that You made possible on the cross. I want to put my faith and trust in You. Not my job. Not my mind. My education. My family. My money. God, I want to put my faith in You. That's what Jesus said. That's His plan of salvation. Repent and believe. That's what Jesus preached. Our Father, we come to You right now. We thank You, Father, for allowing us to be a part of Your church. And I pray, God, that You'll help us as, the, as Your body, Your physical presence on this earth to take that seriously, Lord. Help us, God, to always be alert to areas where we've grown selfish and demanding where we've determined that the church's effectiveness is measured by how well it attracts us. Forgive us, God. Lord, I pray that you'd also help us to do even more to reach the world that's never heard of you. Lord, I pray instead of worrying so much trying to satisfy people that are irreconcilable, and you tell us, Lord, in the end, there will be that. People will be lovers of themselves and irreconcilable. Instead of worrying with all of that, God, I pray that you'd help us to be a part of sharing the gospel with people who've never heard. Help us, Lord. And God, perhaps today there was someone who, they did ask you to save them. I pray you'll give them the grace and the courage to come forward and sit down with a pastor perhaps or a Christian friend that they know. And I pray, Lord, that they would make it public what they've done today. And I pray that you'd help us to take them by the hand, Lord, and teach them and lead them and guide them and direct them and nurture them, Lord. And this would be a place where they could grow in grace for you and for your glory. Lord, we thank you for all you do for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you have any questions or would like to know more about Cornerstone, please visit our website at servantsway.com or email us at office at servantsway.com. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 1186 Hudlow Road, Forest City, North Carolina. Please join us again next week.